tracks for some time now. And it looks like it's lining up so that we'll be able to finish this book before the year 2021, which is kind of crazy to say. Um, and my plan is to finish the book of Acts and then to go to the book of Luke, which both of those books were written by Luke. So we're going to continue hearing from the same author and his experiences and what he learned from testimonies of others and all these truths that were taught to Luke. And it's quite interesting. I, I'm just very curious about this, this doctor, because Luke was a doctor, this physician, of the experiences he saw that he witnessed firsthand and how he was there with them as they were journeying now, as we're reading in Acts and doing all these missions trips. And what it was like as he's documenting this, well, I want to get that firsthand account from him, from Paul, and see what they have to say one day. And if you guys remember where we were left off in the book of Acts, Paul, this missionary heart, this missionary mind, he was desiring to speak to his brethren, the other Jews, as he was sent by God. He was there in, if you remember, the, the church in Ephesus. And as he was there in Ephesus, he told his brethren there in the church that he was desiring to go to Jerusalem. And there were prophecies concerning him going to Jerusalem that the man who went there would be bound in chains and be made a captive. And the Ephesian elders, they began to weep and, and mourn for Paul for this prophecy because they thought, well, this is surely God is telling you, Paul, to stay away from Jerusalem. But they were, in fact, getting hit wrong. They were hearing, yes, there are trials that are going to come to Paul, but God wasn't telling Paul to stop. God was compelling Paul to move forward. Paul was compelled by the love of Christ, so he pressed on to go to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be put into captivity so that he can preach the gospel to his brethren. And as he went, he was then found, as he's there in Jerusalem, by certain Jews from Asia Minor. They remembered Paul. And they saw Paul and they were like, wait a second, we saw this guy back over in the churches up north. And this guy was preaching about Jesus and about him being the Messiah and that the Gentiles are now joining us as Jews and they didn't like this. So those same Jews who he ministered to in Asia Minor, they took Paul and they began to beat him. And there was this skirmish, if you guys remember, there in Jerusalem. They're, they're now beating Paul because they know who he is. They recognized him. And the Roman guards, they see this, and they see this skirmish going on. So they intervene, and they grab Paul. And Paul then, at that point, as all these Jews are upset and angry with him, he turns to the Roman guard and says, Hey, uh, is it all right if I go ahead and talk to my Jewish brethren? And the Roman guard is saying, okay, yeah, go ahead. You want to talk to him? Go ahead. And he begins to speak to his Jewish brethren in Hebrew. 
And as he's talking to them in, in Hebrew, he, they're, they're listening to him and he's saying, look, I'm just like you guys. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know, I was raised in Jewish culture and I know the law. And then he began to, to preach about Jesus to them. And they're listening. They're like, okay, you're, you're talking about the Jesus who came to this world. Remember, we remember he was crucified. And then he said, and God has sent me to go proclaim this gospel to the Gentiles. And as soon as he said that, the Jews got so angry and upset that the gospel would be also for the Gentiles. And they began to get crazy and go after Paul and the Roman guard grabbed Paul and was like, whoa, what, what did you say to them? Because he was speaking in Hebrew. So he's like, hey, like, what did you say to those, those guys? And they, he's like, you know what? Like, beat this guy. So the Roman guard then takes Paul and they're about to whip him. They're about to scourge him. And Paul's like, hey, whoa, whoa, is, is it lawful for you guys to, to whip a Roman? And the, the guard's like, wait a second, you're a Roman also? And he's like, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. I was born in Rome. And that saves them from getting scourged. So they take him then, as we read last week, to that Antonio Fortress. And he's there awaiting to be reviewed and interrogated. And so they call the Jewish elders to come down and to interrogate Paul there under Roman supervision. And it was at this point where he... Is this where we leave off, actually? Yeah, I was at this point. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself of telling the story. Um, the next day, they, they brought him so that the Jewish elders could settle their disputes with him. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 23. I was just going to tell you guys Acts 23 verbatim. <laughs> but I was like, wait a second. We need to read it first. <laughs> Look at verse 1. It says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience, before God until this day. As leaders, what I see in this first verse is that as leaders, it's important to have a good conscience before God. Before the high priests were able to minister there in the temple, they had to consecrate themselves, if you guys remember in the Old Testament. They had to go bathe and do those ceremonial practices so as leaders, it's important that we have a good conscience. And that's what Paul was basically telling them. Look, I've lived amongst you men in all good conscience before God this day. Now, it doesn't mean Paul was perfect. Paul by no means was perfect. If you guys remember, he was Saul, the man who was a terrorist to Christians. But God gave him a new life. And then in verse 2 now, it says, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Oof. This is just pure hatred. Now they, they struck him on the mouth either for not addressing them correctly or because of his boldness in the gospel. But either way, I'm reminded of how they treated Jesus when he was there being also interrogated by the Sanhedrin in an illegal interrogation and they began to strike him on the mouth. And Jesus would ask them, he's like, what have I done that was a crime? And they would say, no, not for 
any disrespect, but because you claim to be God. And he was God. And then they put a bag over his head and began to beat him even more. It's that same hatred that now is being placed upon Paul. And Paul is sharing in the sufferings with Christ. Remember Jesus said when his children are mistreated, it's as if those people who are mistreating them are actually mistreating Jesus himself. And when we do good to God's children, it's as though we are doing good to God, to Jesus himself. In verse three, it says, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law and you command me to be struck contrary to the law. Ooh, now Paul's getting personal here. He's bold. He's saying, look at you whitewashed hypocrite, basically. Whitewashed is the same phrase that Jesus would use when calling the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And the idea behind that is you guys look like a coffin, all nice and pretty on the outside, but inside of that coffin is dead man's bones and dead, that death. So saying these Pharisees, yeah, sure, they looked good on the outside with all their practices and works that they were doing, but their hearts and their minds were far from God. And he told them, he said, look, you guys are judging me according to the law, which was the law of Moses, and even the Roman law, but yet they, they beat him, they struck him in the face, which was not allowed by the law. You see, both the law of Moses and Roman law condemned that a, a man should be struck before he is first heard. It was like there needed to be a trial, there needed to be accounting for. And then in verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So that's kind of interesting. At first he comes kind of bold at them like, you whitewashed tombs. And they're like, hey, man, you're going to talk bad of the high priest like that? And Paul's like, oh, you know what? I didn't know he was the high priest. <laughs> and he's kind of, you know, we see that humility still, even in Paul, that he's still showing the respect and authority that is due to the high priest. And then in verse six, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So Paul here, in his wisdom, begins to relate, first of all, to these people. He says, look, I'm just like you guys. I was born into the Pharisees family. I was the son of both a, a mother and a, and a father who were both Pharisees. And something I just learned actually in this text today in studying is that both men and women can be Pharisees. And Paul was the son, like this 
chosen child who is like the son of both a, a woman and a father Pharisee. Raised in that household, that culture, taught the Jewish law. And what I love here is he brings up a doctrine at this point, at the end of verse 6. He says, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, Paul here, he brings that doctrine up because he knows that in this group that he's preaching to, or that he is really being interrogated by, are half Pharisees and half Sadducees. And those two different groups, the Sadducees, at their time, they were like the modern day, what's called deists. They didn't believe in the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees uh, differed from the Pharisees in this. So by bringing up a doctrine the Pharisees differed from, he created a division amongst the men that he was talking to who had him on trial. And since they wouldn't hear him to make a fair and open defense of his cause, but struck him on the mouth, it was just for him to kind of throw in this confusion amongst the two groups that he was speaking to. You see, what I see here is Paul is as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. And that's what Jesus told us to be like. In verse 7, it says, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Now, again, Pharisees, or the Sadducees, I'll say, they're like the modern day deist. Deist is spelled D-E-I-S-T, in case you guys uh, have not heard this term before. It's uh, when somebody believes that God created the world and then separated himself, had nothing to do with mankind or creation any longer. Um, it's not the, the type of God that the Bible teaches. Now, Sadducees were extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. And there's people like that on this world. They deny, the Sadducees denied any resurrection of the dead. They also denied afterlife and they were holding that the soul perished at death. So they believed that once you died, that was it. So therefore, they denied any penalty or reward after our earthly life. So it's almost like an atheist, but except they believe that a God created things, and then, but once we live and die, that's it. It's game over. And they denied the existence of a spiritual world and angels and demons. And it's kind of interesting just to see how these two groups of people were in the same room accusing Paul concerning Jesus. It's like, man, these guys really then, what I'm seeing then, their truth and their identity was so intertwined with Judaism 
with Israel that they were willing to kill this man over a doctrine they didn't believe in. That they perhaps thought was foolishness. So their hatred just grew. In verse 9 it says, Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So look at the Pharisees are, are now, and the scribes from the Pharisees are standing up because there's this division and they're saying, look, look, we don't find Paul is saying anything really evil. And you know what? If, if this is from the Lord, just let, if God's in this, we can't fight it. And if God's not in it, it's not going to come to anything in the first place. And that was the same mentality that Paul's discipler, Gamaliel had in Acts chapter 5. Earlier, you guys don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 5, uh, when the Christian church began to grow and the disciples began to turn the world right side up, Gamaliel, one of the prophets or one of the high priests, he said in Acts 5 verses 38 and 39, he said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So when you see a work and you're kind of questioning it, kind of wondering like, man, uh, I'm not sure if this is God or not. Sometimes you just got to let it run its course. And if it's of God, you know, God's going to continue it because where God guides, God provides. And if it's not, sometimes the best thing to do is let things die a natural death. So they were deciding now basically to let Paul go. And then in verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force among them and bring him into the barracks. So again, they're about, some of them are saying like, ah, oh, we should let him go. And then there's other guys who are like, no, we need to kill him. And everywhere Paul seems to go, he's either causing revival or riot. You see, he has the gospel just penetrating men and women's hearts and he's starting these churches everywhere he goes, causing revival. And when the gospel comes across ears that are against the gospel, they'd begin to riot. I'm reminded of how Jesus told us, told his disciples, that his message was not going to be to bring peace to everyone. That his message was actually going to be offensive. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, I'm going to read some verses of some of the words that Jesus warned us about. And this is out of the New Living Translation. So uh, 
if you guys have the New King James, which I teach out of, just bear with me. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus said, Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. And see, that's what Jesus is warning us of. He brought peace to his children. But he also knew that there was going to be people who rejected the gospel. And because of this, there would be a division amongst believers and non-believers, right in our very households, right in our families. In the New King James Version, when it says, uh, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, that's how it reads in the NLT, but in the New King James Version, it says, if you don't hate your father or mother, um, and that word for hate, it's translated to love less, to love less than. So we, the idea there is we should not have anything equal with God in our life. God needs to be number one. So when it comes to marriage, when it comes to relationships, family life, we need to make sure God is first in our life. When we have circumstances of choosing God or family, we need to choose God. And there's going to be times, you know, when God's going to tell you, hey, like you need to spend more time with your family. And you are obeying God in that. But we need to have wisdom and discernment. And I love how Jesus' words at the end of that were, look, if you try to hold on to this life that we have here on this earth, you're going to lose that. But if you give that life up to God and submit to him, you're going to find that true purpose-filled life full of the Holy Spirit. So these words of Jesus, they rang true in Paul's life and his ministry here where there is still riot now taking place. So look at verse 11 back in Acts. In verse 11, it says, But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, I love this because Paul right here, he had to be told, Be of good cheer, Paul, because Paul was not of good cheer. He was sad. He was down. He was probably depressed at this point. This was that moment that he had been waiting for his whole Christian life of being able to get in front of the Jewish leaders, of being able to talk to his brothers who he felt he would relate to the most, 
being that he came from them. And he felt like, you know what, God, if you just put me in front of them, they'll listen to me. And people will, will convert and there will be revival in the Jewish community. And then Paul gets that moment. And as he's preaching the gospel, he just sees hate. He's getting smacked up in the face. And then Paul is thrown into the barracks because they are basically wanting to rip him apart. Certain men want to let him go. Other men want him to be dead. And so now as he's there in the dungeon, God comes to him. Stands by him. Says, be of good cheer, Paul. I think that's something that we need to take to heart. Is to be of good cheer. To be of good cheer as we serve at work, at school, and in ministry with our families. We've got Thanksgiving coming this Thursday. And there's a lot of reasons, I think, sometimes as you're getting ready for food and getting together to not be of good cheer. Maybe even some of us are, are, are sad that uh, we're not going to have that big family event that we usually have on Thursdays. Uh, maybe, you know, where we're at right now and as a nation, there's a lot of reasons for us to look at it and to not be of good cheer. And I think that's when God has to remind us that he has a plan. He has to tell us, be of good cheer. To look to him. See, Paul must have felt pretty defeated. He's now the prisoner in the Antonio Fortress and hated by the Sanhedrin. But what was more important was that he was obedient to preach to the church in Jerusalem. And then he's going to be brought he was brought before the Sanhedrin, but now he's also going to be brought to the powers that lie in Rome. See, he was obedient with that first step. And God was like, dude, I didn't ask for the results. I just asked you to be obedient. And sometimes that we get concerned too much on the results of our ministry of perhaps if we're, we're talking to someone and we're hoping that they that they get it, that they receive, and that they accept it. But God is more concerned that we're obedient to share. And the results are up to him. And then now Paul is getting prepared to go to Rome. There in verse 12, look at this. It says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now this word for oath, the Greek word, it's an athema. That means accursed. So they're vowing a curse upon themselves to be punished that if they weren't to keep this, this fasting, so these men swore to it, they bound themselves with an oath, and they wished that they might be accursed of God and cut off from his people if they don't kill Paul before they eat again. So this plot now against him, look at verse 13. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have found ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, 
together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So in these three verses, I see here a conspiracy that I can know is real, because the Bible talks about it. And this is a plot to kill Paul. It's a work of Satan who knows Paul is spreading the gospel message and wants to hinder that gospel message from going from Jerusalem to Rome. So these men, these 40 men, they get together and they're like, you know what, let's all make this oath, this pact. We're not going to eat anything until Paul is killed. And then they go to the Jewish elders and they say, hey, why don't you guys call Paul from prison one more time so that you guys can make an address to him? And as he's being transported back to the Jewish elders, we're going to jump in and we're going to kill him. And this is now the conspiracy. In verse 16, So when Paul's sister, Paul's sister's son, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. What I see here is that spiritual warfare. Pastor Raul was talking about this morning. Um, One of the early services at Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, was listening, listening to that. And I see that when there's a work of God, we see a work of Satan coming against it. But then I also see, you know what? God has his messengers and his angels also to go forward. So we should pray that God would empower us by the Holy Spirit to fight that spiritual warfare. And that's what's happening, the conspiracy against Paul. But what happens? Paul's nephew hears of the conspiracy. And then in verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. I love how God uses a young man here. Perhaps sometimes we're thinking, oh, what, or what, what can I do for you, God? Like, I'm, I'm too young, I'm too old too tall, too short, whatever, you know, whatever it is for you. But God can use anyone. It doesn't matter. As long as we just make ourselves available to God. And then in verse 19, after the commander kind of brings in this young man, he's like, look, this young man has something to say to you, sir. The little boy, I imagine him walking up. This is verse 19. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is this that you have to tell me? See, I wonder how old this kid was because he he's taking him by the hand. I'm like, man, I'm imagining like my little nephew, like Matthew, like, like I'll tell you what he said. <laughs> and then in verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him 
Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. See, the centurion, he's smart enough and realizes that this knowledge must be kept secret. And I wonder what will happen to those Jews who were under oath not to eat anything. They're going to have to either go on starving or break that oath and be accursed now. It's a bad oath to make. Verse 23. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Now this third hour, that would be nine o'clock. You see, they count their hours from six o'clock, 6 a.m. and then 6 p.m. That's like kind of like when their hour starts. So, because that's when they considered the days to be turning on and off, so to speak. So now three hours after six, that's around nine o'clock. And from Jerusalem to Caesarea was, is the journey they're about to go on with this large group of men. It's about 60 miles. And he's being, now Paul is being sent off in a royal way with an escort of 470 soldiers. Now that had to be a neat experience for Paul, I think. Where he sees God is protecting him. And then imagine he's, he's there preaching the gospel, thrown in prison. And then the next thing, he's now being escorted by all these Roman soldiers. And he's just like, dude, this is pretty crazy. Like, I'm just trying to share the gospel to my brothers. And, like, all this stuff is happening. And now we've got the Roman government with me, protecting me. It's crazy. In verse 24. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So Felix, he's the governor of this time. Felix before whom Paul was about to be tried, was at one time a slave. A little history for you guys right here. This is a history class of the New Testament. Ready? Felix, again. He had a brother whose name was Paulus, who was one of Nero's, Nero, Caesar Nero, favorite persons. So Paulus interceded with Nero because Felix was a slave, and Nero would end up freeing Felix from his slavery. And through this continued intercession of his brother Paulus, Nero made him the only slave to become a governor in the Roman Empire up to that point. And he was the first slave who became a governor. He was, however, though, a very crude person, Felix was. He was corrupt. And Tacitus, the historian, said he governed like a slave. Now, Felix had three wives in quick Secession. And we don't know the name of the first wife, but the second was actually the granddaughter of Cleopatra. Maybe you've heard of her. And Anthony was the granddad, whom he divorced and married finally. Drusilla was his third wife, who was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And at this time, Felix had been reigning as governor over the province for five years. He was very corrupt in his reigning. And he was going to reign for two more years before being deposed and banished by the Roman government because of his corruption. So this is the man before whom Paul must appear now to make this defense. And now this letter goes to Felix. It says in verse 25, 
he wrote a letter in this manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. That's a pretty cool title. Maybe to write in one of your Christmas cards, the most excellent fiance. <laughs> Greetings, it says in verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And it was told me by the Jews that the Jews lay in wait for the man. I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So remember that Roman guard, Claudius, he takes Paul, he had him kept in the prison, then sent him now with this garrison of Roman troops, and he sends with a letter. He's like, look, man, this guy was getting like attacked by his Jewish brethren concerning things of their law, and I'm giving him to you now, so now he's your problem. Figure it out. I'm reminded of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, in the account of Jesus. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 27? So now that Felix is about to receive Paul to be basically interviewed, interrogated, and put on trial, so to speak. To me, I liken it to when Jesus was placed there also before Pilate, another Roman governor. Now in Matthew 27, look at verses 21 through 25. Verse 21, it says, The governor, that would be Pilate, answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Now you remember, Pilate, every year it was a custom for the Roman government to release one of these Jewish prisoners. And they would get to decide. So Pilate has Jesus there, the king of kings, after he was scourged and whipped with a crown of thorns on his head. And he says, who do you want me to release to you? The king of the Jews over here, Jesus? Or this rebel who's a murderer, Barabbas? And the crowd yells out, Barabbas. And then in verse 22, it says, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And I think that's a, a question that we must ask ourselves. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? You see, as Pilate was saying this, thinking that his condemnation would fall upon Christ, thinking that his judgment was going to be placed upon Jesus, the reality is that his judgment was going to be placed upon himself. And that same reality is true to us. What shall we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Because what we decide to do with that answer has an impact on our eternal destiny. It has an impact 
on eternal rewards or eternal condemnation. It goes on to say in that passage in verse 23 or 22. I'll read it again. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed with his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. See, that was the response of the Jews to their Messiah as they rejected him. And Pilate, though he was thinking that he was in control of this situation, he was really deciding his own fate, not Jesus's. See, the fate of the Christ was to be resurrected and to reign with God at the right hand. So think about that as you go on this week of what are we going to do with Jesus, the Messiah? And if you guys would turn back to Acts chapter 23. After Felix receives this letter from the Roman governor, it says in verse 31, And then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. So the footmen left and the horsemen continued on. And then in verse 33, when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So now there in Caesarea, the governor reads, Felix reads of what's been going on with Paul. And he's like, okay, this is an interesting case. And he finds out that Paul's basically a Roman citizen. So because of this, he's like, you know what? You're going to stay here in Herod's Praetorium, which was rather a beautiful palace. Now, I'm not sure exactly where he was in this palace. I mean, he could have been perhaps in some really tough barracks to live in. But this is something I, I've seen myself, and Lord willing, my, myself and Lisette will get to see this next April, is there in Sassaria, there's right there the Mediterranean port where Herod's palace was. There's this beautiful reef that's half covered with water and half of it that Herod's palace is still standing up outside of it and then right next to the, the the palace there's what's called the hippodrome which was a small stadium where there they would have all types of stadium events Romans and gladiator type stuff and it's awesome to see the historical evidence that's right there that you can go see to this day in Rome and that's where Paul was kept, kept as a prisoner. 
And we're going to find out as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, what's going to happen to Paul, where God's going to take him next. And his adventure is not over yet. The exciting parts aren't over yet. We still got to read about him getting shipwrecked on Malta and how God does the awesome work for him there. But in all this, what we see is that Paul is being prepared. That sometimes though we feel like we failed in our our ministries and our activities, God is using all these things in our life to shape us, to mold us, so that we can grow day by day to continue to, to spread his word, to understand that we're in spiritual warfare, to realize that the gospel is going to bring division in our lives. It's going to separate us from people, from loved ones. But may we not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will will reap the harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We pray and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to do that work in our hearts and our minds, Lord God, cleansing us, molding us, shaping us, giving us boldness, Father. I pray for this Thanksgiving week, Lord, that as we visit with friends and family members, Lord, may we show them the love of Christ, Lord God. May we not become divided, Lord. Father, not divided from you. But I do pray and I ask, Lord God, that we would Speak truth, Lord, when you give us opportunity. Give us discernment on how to do so. Give us love. And Father, may you fill us with your grace, your love, just filled with your spirit, growing in the gifts that you've given us. We love you, Father. We praise you, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Well, next week, uh, if you guys have any leftovers that you just can't bear on yourselves, go ahead and just bring them on Sunday. We'll, uh, I'll make sure they get taken care of and properly uh, disposed of in my stomach. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Let's praise God with this last song. I was.
righteousness Oh God, how I need you Lord, I need you Oh, I need you Every hour I need you My one defense my righteousness Oh God, how I need you My one defense My righteousness Oh God, how I need you Amen, be blessed in Jesus' name We'll see ya